This is Dr. Holly Lucille's Mindful Medicine. Here's Dr. Holly Lucille. Well, hello there, mindful listeners. Thank you so much once again for spending part of your day with us. I am so excited about today's show. I always say that, I know, but truly, I mean, so much is going on, right? And we've been talking a lot about our current situation in the world, pandemic, um, State of the Union, all of those things. But I'm going to break from that today. And I've got a guest who's fascinating, Michael Shaw. I'm going to bring him on. He is going to tell us a story of karma finding love and truth in the Lost Valley of the Himalayas. Yes, he is a mountaineer, he's an entrepreneur, and a storyteller who lives to explore remote places around the world and to share the depth and beauty of human connection. Now, this is what I think we are yearning for more than anything right now, because uh, I think I've heard the saying, kind of alone together, right? Safer at home, but we're in this together. But some of these connections that we miss so much um, are, are, are coming through and people are feeling it and not being able to hug. So I think this is a perfect segment for today. And I want to bring Michael to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Holly, for having me on. So this, so we're going to talk about, well, well, let's just start off. Tell me, tell us about this, this trip that you took in 2012 to the Himalayas. What prompted you to seek out this particular remote region? Oh boy. Okay. Well, I mean, since I was a teenager, I've always uh, had this, you know, very strong draw to, to the Nepal Himalaya. You know, you think about these majestic peaks and, and it wasn't only about the mountains. It was about the people there as well and the culture. And, uh, I can't explain to you why. I just always felt this um, this very strong pull to to go there. And so in 2012, um, when I was, uh, it took me over a decade uh, to finally get there. <laughs> um, but you know, in 2012, <laughs> I, well, you know how it is, right? You know, when you're when you're young, you don't really have the money, and then as you sort of get your career going, you know, you don't necessarily have the time. But uh, and then on top of that, I never really knew what I wanted to do. But one day, my my, my wife and I we sat down with this uh, gentleman who had just come back and he's, he'd been going to Nepal for decades. And, um, and he found this little, uh, at the time, relatively unknown Valley, this little offshoot um, that had been closed off to outsiders for generations. And it had just been opened up to, uh, to the outside world. And so he was showing me some of the pictures on his phone and I thought, Oh my goodness, like this is, this looks like um, my dream. This is, this is just like something out of, um, you know, National Geographic magazine or something. I didn't know these places still existed like this. Um, and so I thought, OK, this is this is perfect. Let's let's go. And then, and then I saw this mountain <laughs> that, he, that he had. Uh, and as a mountaineering fanatic, I um, I immediately thought, OK, this, this I've got to climb this mountain. That's amazing. I mean, and besides the story that we're going to be talking about today, you've you've turned this this journey into a book called a story of karma mm-hmm. yeah so that's going to be great for our listeners that's right. yeah, yeah we're, that's gonna be great for our listeners so you know i i just witnessed um a friend who took a trip and you know trips have to be creative these days um through and drove from the los angeles area all the way up all the way up into the tetons and yellowstone and um stayed at a ranch you know and there and everybody's practicing social distancing and stuff but as i saw his pictures come through 
on Facebook, I, I felt like, oh my gosh, that's my topography. That's my jam. Like I just, I love that the rivers and the, and the mountains and, you know, cause if people ask you ocean or mountain, ocean or mountain, one of those things, I'm always, I'm always the mountain girl. <laughs> so I understand, I, I mean, maybe not to the extent for your pull to the Himalayas, but I certainly understand when you see something and it's almost like you've never been there before, but it's like out of a movie or out of, like you said, that magazine, National Geographic. And it's like, holy crap, that place is there and I want to go. So, you know, you are a hiker, obviously, and a mountaineer. Um, and even before this journey, what, you know, for you draws you to the mountains and how does it affect the way you live? And also, Michael, tell me exactly what a, what is a mountaineer? How would you describe that to my listeners? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, yeah, no, these are very good questions. I mean, first of all, uh, my draw to the mountains. So it's something that, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my parents, we used to have one of those um, Westphalia camper vans, mm-hmm. you know, with the pop-up tops. And, <laughs> and my dad would take us all over North America and, and we'd, you know, stay in these campgrounds, often surrounded by these mountainous peaks. So I think maybe that was, that was part of it. My dad, you know, he came over from Germany. He had a very adventurous spirit. So that would kind of infuse, um, you know, some of the, the, the draw in me as well. And um, so I think, you know, from a er- very early age, I was very um, kind of exposed to, uh, to these kind of scenes. And then, um, you know, I'll never forget one day I was hiking with a, a gentleman uh, who was a mountaineer. And I was at that time, I was 16, I think 16 years old. And, uh, and we went out for a hike and we were having a good time, just good conversation out there on the trails. And he said, you know, Mike, I, I want to take you up a mountain. Um, and I, at 16 years old, I had no idea what that, what that meant. But <laughs> I said, okay, that's, that's awesome. Let's, <laughs> let's go. And so the next weekend we went out in his, um, in his four by four. He lent me his, his crampons, which are the, you know, kind of the spikes that you put on your boots. Sure. Uh, he lent me his ice axe. You, you know, you have to see the ice axe with the, with the pick on the front. Uh, he lent me, you know, his harness and all the, all the gear that I needed. And off we went and climbed this mountain. And I remember there was one point where we were coming up to the top. And it was, uh, if you can imagine, this uh, sort of very steep uh, kind of icy snow face. And, uh, I was, you know, he just said, just kick, you know, kick your right foot in a couple of times, kick your left foot in, plunge the ice axe. Um, you know, if you fall, uh, dig in with the pointy end on the axe. <laughs> and, uh, and so you hear, you know, again, a total kid. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just following him. And I remember at one point I was... Um, you know, we'd been climbing for several hours and, and I just kind of stopped uh, just to catch my breath. And I looked over my shoulder and, uh, you know, well, first of all, to the left and to the right, it was just this total kind of glistening white snow slope. Um, the, uh, the sun was just coming up. And, and then I looked over my shoulder and there was this, um, all these peaks, all these sort of distant peaks that were being lit up by the, the sunrise. And I just thought, you know what? there's this, uh, there's this whole world out there, you know, that, that we don't know about and, and that we can only access by our, um, you know, our will to climb up here. And I I thought in that moment, I just remember, you know, this is it, this is, this is it for me. Ah. And from that moment on, I, I never, I never looked back and just kept climbing mountains. And, uh, and yeah, so, you know, what defines a mountaineer? Well, it's somebody who goes into these high places it doesn't have to be the Himalaya. It doesn't have to be high places like you mentioned, the Tetons. Um, but it really involves, um, you know, knowing how to adapt and how to function in these high places, using the gear, having the skill, having the mindset, having the will, 
Um, it's, you know, far different than say, for example, hiking where you're in a relatively, uh, you know, safe zone uh, most of the time. Uh, mountaineering is really about um, adapting to the rock and to the ice and to the conditions right. and, uh, and, and constantly having that heightened sense of, um, of, of your surroundings. Um, so, and, and I, and I kind of feed off that. Yeah. Like, it, it may sound weird, but like, it's just like this, almost like an addiction, you know, to, to just drive in the intensity. So, you know, I, I really appreciate yeah. the distinct, like the distinguishment, because I'll tell you, I remember a long, long time ago, somebody had asked me, we were out in Colorado for a conference, like, have you ever mountain biked? And I'm like, yeah, I have a mountain bike. I mean, and literally that was my, I'm like, I, I correlated having a mountain bike um, which were very popular those days instead of the 10 speed that, you know, we're kind of moving over into the mountain biking. Um, so I correlated having a mountain bike with have, have been going <laughs> mountain biking, which are two totally different things. <laughs> Same thing with car camping, right? Same thing with car camping versus, oh yeah, the glamping. versus, right. Versus, um, outback backpacking. And I have to tell you the first time, um, I have a, a dear friend, I, I call her the dad I never had out loud um, in public because she, um, she's a, a, she's a, she's a, um, another naturopathic doctor, but she's been around forever and she's just really revered, but she lives in Portland and she grew up in a co-op and um, she's the first person that actually took me uh, out back backpacking in Mount Hood. And I thought I had like mm. died and gone to heaven and I was like, this, I mean, mm -hmm. I wanted to do this my entire life. And I just remember like coming home and having my first shower and just like, just bawling my eyes out because it was just unbelievably beautiful. But same thing, right? A, a difference between camping and then going in and hiking in and then experiencing those surroundings. Um, it's just, uh, I, I, I love that um, you liken it to just having to adapt and, and having nature sort of be your path and also be your guide. Mm -hmm. So I want to know more. Um, tell me from, you know, this, this book, obviously, um, regarding a story of karma your story comes from mm -hmm. the, the things that you learned in the himalayan culture how they raise their children and cultivate mindfulness and you decided to incorporate that back into your own life when you return to i love what you say you say that you and your wife <laughs> uh, make your base camp in squamish british columbia meaning this is where you live right <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's correct. Oh, yeah. Just, sorry. Just to clarify for listeners. That's a whole... Exactly. No, but uh, the terminology fits you perfectly. Um, so, you know, I've, you know, I've gone on vacation before and, and, uh, and, and been to beautiful places and feel like, gosh, I just want to bring like, uh, mostly with the mountains, to tell you the truth, I want to bring this back into my life. I want to, I want to make sure that I bring this experience and, and infuse it back into you know, look, I live in Los Angeles and have a fairly busy, you know, family life and career and such. And so um, I've had that intention. But tell me about that experience, especially what you learned from that Himalayan culture. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it kind of happened gradually. There were all these little nuances that started happening. I won't get into all of them, but I'll, I'll try and highlight some of the major ones. Um, I mean, if we remember, like, you know, the, the primary draw to me for going to the Himalaya was to climb this, this sort of pyramidal peak. And, and that was kind of front and center, but but as I mentioned before that, I had always felt this deep connection with the um, with the dwellers, with the Himalayan dwellers up there, the people and the culture. And um, and so, you know, as we got into this, they called it actually the Lost Valley, 
of the Himalaya as we got into this Lost Valley. Um, and it's actually considered by Tibetans as a Bayul, uh, which means sacred valley. And these sacred valleys, um, you know, were kind of placed uh, or hidden throughout the Himalaya as places that are, are connected. They're thought of being connected more, uh, you know, kind of like where the spiritual and physical realms uh, come closer together. So, you know, again, that heightened sensitivity of, of, uh, of truth, right? So, you know, here we are in this sacred valley. I come to the mountain and uh, on the very slopes of the mountain, um, you know, approaching it, I, just everything just starts falling apart. Um, you know, we get caught in a snowstorm at 17,000 feet. Uh, you know, my the mule that was carrying my climbing gear uh, ran away. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and, uh, and all these things just started unraveling, right? And uh, so it kind of forced me to hunker down in this little remote outpost called a little village called Fu. And, uh, and you know, over several days, I really started connecting with the locals. Uh, you know, we were invited for dinners in their in their little homes, you know, their little stone houses. And often you'd, times you'd have, you know, 20 or 30 people crammed into one of these little uh, places. But it was just so um, it was just so heartwarming. I mean, the, you know, here we are in probably the most uh, remote place I've ever been, uh, you know, that's that's geographically challenging and, um, you know, just a very hard place to survive. And, and then here we have, you know, some of the most hospitable, hospitable people um, you know, I've ever met and just welcoming us in as brothers and sisters. And, and, and we didn't, you know, we couldn't speak each other's language, but, um, but, you know, you, you kind of go back to the, the human, uh, connection of, of, of speaking with your eyes. Right. And, um, and so it just started touching me very deeply these experiences. And, and one of the things that I learned about as we were spending time with the locals there, uh, is just the, um, the lack of access to education mm. and uh, and and the children there oftentimes they um, they just end up running around kicking cans uh, from a very young age um, you know they have to start working in the fields you know by the time they're seven eight eight years old they have to start working um, and and it's very hard labor you know they have to carry sometimes you can see the um, the Nepali people they'll carry uh, weight um, around their with a strap around their forehead. Um, so it's it's very hard work. Um, by the time they're 14, 15 years old, uh, the girls, uh, they're a lot of them are getting married, uh, starting to have children of their own. So it, it's just it's a very different way. And and so we got to know that this idea of, of education um, was something very important to them. Uh, they did, you know a lot of times the elders and the the parents they didn't necessarily know. Uh, you know what it meant, but they could just see some kids coming back who had gone to uh, to some sort of institution or or have gotten some sort of out of village education, and uh, and they'd come back and they were able to to provide much more. Um, so they often call it, you know, they'd rather their children have a pencil in the hand uh, versus a strap around the forehead. So um, so that's kind of the the idea, and and so these thoughts were kind of floating around. Um, as we, you know, as I was going through this, first of all, as I was going through this identity crisis of why did I wait, you know, over a decade to come to Nepal and just be shut down, and 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 so that was, you know, prompting this whole Jekyll and Hyde, you know, conversation with myself over days, and and my wife, you know, bless her, like she was patient to kind of listening to me <laughs> go on about all this, um, and. Um, and anyway, so we, um, because I didn't climb the mountain, we ended up going to this other 
little village called Nar. And, and when I caught wind that there was a school there, uh, we, we went to visit the school. And in, in the school, when we got there, there was a little girl, seven-year-old girl, um, you know, teaching English numbers to a classroom wow. of about 13 kids from, from about, you know, three years old to, to, uh, to eight years old. And, uh, and I just, I don't know, something in me just, just kind of struck, like, I just felt this karmic um, connection to this little girl somehow. Uh, I can't really explain it, but I just felt this strong pull and um, there was something about her. Um, and so, um, yeah, so, so we were watching there and, and we finally found the teacher uh, who was looming in the back. And he, he kind of explained to us that he felt he had been banished to the end of the earth. <clears throat> he was from a, a different village, like far, far away, you know, week, over a week walk away. Um, and, and which understandably, I mean, you know, he had to leave his family to be there to teach these kids. And again, in this very rough uh, environment, but, um, but he, um, yeah, he, he basically had no interest in teaching them. <clears throat> and, um, and so, uh, but it wasn't long before the kids um, caught, you know, they saw the, a guitar uh, because we had one of our team members, you know, was a musician and he had his guitar slung over his shoulder and, um, and they'd never seen a guitar before, let alone heard one. Um, so the kids, you know, they got very intrigued by that. And the teacher said, okay, yeah, you know, he didn't have anything really better planned for the class. So he said, you know, might as well play them some music on the guitar. And so Michael, our musician, he, um, he started teaching the kids like this jazzed up rendition of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and, and they got into it and, and they were just all singing along and it was just, and you imagine like these, these kids in the stone school uh, singing to this jazzed uh, version of the song with these 7,000 meter Himalayan giants like looming above you. I mean, the whole scene was just something out of this world. Um, but, um, but anyway, uh, the teacher, I guess he got a little motivated and he brought out this Nepali drum and he started to play this drum and he wanted the kids to dance one at a time in front of us. Uh, and he, and he picked wow. this little girl who had been teaching so confidently first, he said, you know, he basically said, you know, you, uh, you dance now, right. In front of these people. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, can you imagine, right. This seven year old girl, right. She, she didn't, she probably didn't even know how to dance. I don't know if her parents ever taught her. Um, but anyway, there she was. And she, uh, you know, Holly, I kid you not. She looked like, uh, a petrified animal Aww. in a corner, just ready to, I mean, she looked like she was internally crying. Um, and we were all standing there kind of, okay, this is, this is awkward. And, and, um, and so Chantal, my wife, like she couldn't, she couldn't take it. She, um, she marched right up there and she started, um, <laughs> she started doing her best rendition of, um, of this, uh, sorry. <clears throat> no, I I can feel it. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is exactly probably why this incredible book came right out of you. So I appreciate it, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, the, she just kind of broke out into this Nepali dance, like waving her arms around. And, and it's not like Chantal knows how to how to dance here. Dance, but, yeah. um, but the I mean, she knows how to dance, but not, not Nepali dance. Right. And, uh, right. <laughs> And, and so this little girl started trying to mimic her moves and the two of them were having this, the most magical moments here um, in front of these Himalayan peaks. And it just, that, that's kind of what sparked this whole, this whole journey of us together. Um, and so it just kind of, and that was back in 2012. So over the next eight years, um, we, we've, we've been growing our relationship together, you know, with, her, with, and the little girl's name, by the way, is Karma and her sister Pemba 
and their family oh. and just kind of, um, you know, growing our relationship and lives together, uh, trying to navigate the, you know, these complex um, dichotomies and, uh, and sort of all these complexities of our world uh, from education yeah. gaps to cultural differences to, you know, how, how, how do you, I mean, you know, imagine these two little girls from the middle of the mountains who had never been outside of a 10 kilometer radius uh, from their village who had never seen a bicycle you know, how do you equip these two little girls um, to have choices in our modern world without losing touch with their values and their cultural roots, their yeah. dharma? They yeah. call it the dharma, right? You know, um, they're Buddhist up there. I just want to remind the listeners that this this book, and, and, and actually the book is card, the, the book is called A Story of Karma. And so I love that now I know that this little girl's name was Karma, um, because of course that's a double entendre right there. But um, I remember being, so I went to Cambodia about four years ago and I went with um, a nonprofit that I was part of. I was on the board called Wide Open Wings, and the whole thing was to, you know, establish that um, that educational system in these villages where these kids had nothing. And then we were also there with a, another organization called um, Development and Gardens Dig. So, what I did mostly there was help the children and, and women um, learn how to grow food so they could take it to the marketplace. And when I came back, you know, I mean, you know, just imagine being in Cambodia, um, and then I mean, I think the the stark dichotomy of just even the cab ride home from LAX was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? But I just, I, I just felt like once, I think you, you said something similar to this, they have so little, but they are so happy. And um, the joy and, and how they live effortlessly in their lives, I mean, not effortlessly, there's a lot of effort that, that puts, that's put in as a survival, but but um, I was really struck by that. So my, my last question for you here um, is about your book, mm-hmm. um, which I have and I've been reading through and I just I can't wait to actually just sit down and be with it. But what would you like readers of this book um, and our listeners from the podcast to take away from hearing about your trip? Yeah, I know that that's a that's an excellent question. Um, I mean, first and foremost, I guess the objective for me to to write this um, was to share a good story. So I, I hope readers, you know, would find that this is just a great story. And and particularly in this time of COVID when maybe we can't travel or we can't go to these places, you know, maybe this is a way to, um, you know, to kind of visit, uh, you know, this kind of faraway land people um, sort of step outside of our minds for a moment um, in the everyday lives. Um, but beyond that, you know, for me, I, I hope the, the readers will experience a little bit of what I experienced. Uh, you know, in other words, um, this journey of what started as, as trying to trying to strive for a personal objective, uh, you know, very much in my own mind, um, but then turned into a journey of the heart. So I'm hoping that maybe readers will be able to, um, to kind of take down some of those blinders, right? I think when we remove our blinders, when we oftentimes, you know, in our world, especially in our modern world, we can get very caught up in our own, in our own challenges, right? Which is, which is normal and fine. But, um, but I think when we, when we start to remove these blinders and we start to broaden our worldview, our perspective, um, you know, we, we can have a deeper understanding, uh, not only of others, right? When we start to listen to others um, and, and have that empathy, but we can also, through that process, we can actually have a deeper understanding um, of ourselves. 
and I and I think that is very important, um, especially these days, and and with what's going on in in the world, um, in terms of understanding differences and 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 not pursuing individualistic, ego-driven pursuits, but more so focusing on the collective, the community. Um, you know, how do we? We're as you said at the very beginning. Uh, you know, we're all in this together. Um, so how do we? How how do we? How do we operate from that? kind of value system. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a great reminder and great story. A lovely storyteller. Michael, it's Shoush, right? Right. I knew it's Shoush, right? Last name? Uh, sh- yeah. Yeah. Shoush. Um, the CH on the end is kind of silent, but but yeah, that's, 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 that's very good. I knew, that's very so Michael, I, I knew... <laughs> I knew I was going to look at it and get it wrong. Like, this is my, like, consummate hosting <laughs> flub up. Is like, I could get it right at the top of the show, but signing off, forget about it. But you know what I'm going to do for the listeners is spell your last name. Um, mm-hmm. It's S-C-H-A-U-C-H. Michael is mm-hmm. the author of the incredible book, A Story of Karma. Thank you so much for being here and for weaving uh, a story in these tough times and with your next experience or, you know, um, love and truth in the valleys of the Himalayas and beyond, I would love to have you back. Listeners, thank you so much for being open to a story like this in this tough time and dig in, get this book, sit with it and have your own journey. All right, we'll see you next time.